page 84 in your journal. Page 84 is where we're going to go today. And I'm going to read a section of scripture that we're going to stay locked into, anchored into today. I have a lot of quotes. Um, It's going to be scripturally rich today, so write. And honestly, if you don't shout back at me, I will just assume you are writing notes. Or being challenged. Or convicted. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Additionally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord that you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God. So I just want to stop there and let us know that the Bible is very clear as to how we should live and please God. Y'all with me so far? As you are doing. So he commends them and he says, now do it even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, show of hands, how many of you ever asked yourself the question or wondered to yourself, what is the will of God for my life? Show of hands. Have you ever like, what's, what's my purpose? What's, what's, my, what's the will of God? And, and the church has done really many of us a, a, a disservice because we've attached the will of God primarily to our vocation or our giftedness. <clears throat> and it's messed us up. Because the Bible actually speaks very clearly about the will of God for your life and for my life. We're going to read it right now. For this is God's will, your sanctification. This is God's will, your sanctification. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, your sanctification. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this means one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or a sister in this manner. Because the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, is the avenger of all of these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects, listen to this. Anyone who rejects this does not reject man. But God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So today, as we continue on our series, Tethered, I want to speak to you from the subject, sanctification, a new way to be human. A new way to be human. As we look at the power of God's grace at work in our lives, bringing transformation and change into every single area of who you and I are. Will you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, active, and powerful, and your word changes us. It is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. So God, move me out of the way. No one needs Jason Parrish's voice today. We need your voice. We need your word in our ear. We need your your word in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips. So we acknowledge that this space right now, the declaration of your word, declaration of truth, is where freedom is found. I pray for that in Jesus' mighty name. Come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. In his 1982 hit song, Michael Jackson says, if they say, why, why, come on, somebody, tell them that it's human nature. And I just need to stop and pause for a second. Uh, For those of you who have not heard this song before, uh, we will have a prayer line at the end of service because uh, we need to talk about your musical genres that you listen to. Um, He goes on to, to say, if they say, why, why, and he repeats it again, He says, tell them that it's human nature. I don't know if there's a more revealing and precise statement describing the reality of humanity. Why do we do what we do? 
It's human nature. Why do we say what we say? It's human nature. Why do we desire what we desire? It's human nature. Why do we lie? Why do we cheat? Why do we steal? Why do we murder? Why do we abuse? Why do we covet? Why do we sexualize? Why do we numb out? Why do we hate? Why do we objectify? Why do we overpower? Why do we ignore? Why is there racism? The secular commentary that Michael Jackson would give us would say because it's human nature. Show of hands, have any of you ever felt the impact of human nature? Have any of you in here ever been the one to disfuse human nature? Have any of us in here been the ones to allow human nature to get the best of us? And has your human nature impacted somebody else before? These are real questions that we must deal with face on. Now, I want you to hold that introductory statement. So I want you to hold it as an as a open tab for a second. And before we continue on any further, I want to acknowledge the context of this beautiful letter written to the Thessalonians by Paul the Apostle. According to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, it would be Paul who would establish this church in Thessalonica. This would take place during his second missionary journey. The formative moments in the life of this church were surrounded by controversy and contention. As people, specifically Greeks and prominent leading women in the community, connected to the message that Paul and Silas were proclaiming. The message of salvation found in and through Jesus. We talked about this message last week. It was so controversial, this message, that a mob was actually formed and a riot took place. We can read about this in Acts chapter 17. Not being able to find Paul because he had escaped, the mob would shift their attention to a man named Jason. Thanks, Mom, for the name. It's awesome. <laughs> the accusation against what was taking place in this community is summed up in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. As the mob would declare this, listen to why they were writing. Listen to why they were getting ready to forcefully take, abuse, and potentially kill this church and those a part of it. These men have turned the world upside down. Can we just think about that for a moment? This, the proclamation of the gospel. We are told by a mob in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 is a message that turns the world upside down. It's countercultural. It doesn't make sense. It's seeded with grace and potential and life. And, and those who hear it and accept it and welcome it into their life flourish in a totally different way. And this accusation was because of the perceived threat of the gospel message that Paul and his missionary journeys were declaring, as well as those who had received the message of Jesus. The broad reality of this church's context, social context, was a city that was sexually unbound where anything went. I mean, it was wild and out. 
We did a series a long, long, long time ago out of the book of Corinthians, and we, we entitled it Church Gone Wild. And I'll tell you what, Thessalonica was no different. The city was wrought with sexual immorality, and the, and the kind of the mantra of the day was do whatever you want to do because anything is possible. They were praised, they were lauded, they were encouraged to just be buck wild and out and made Las Vegas. Come on, look like the kiddie pool. This letter finds Paul contending and commending the Thessalonians on much of what they were doing and how they were enduring. He was proud of them, but there were still some things that they were struggling with as they found themselves in the middle of their cultural reality. Paul works to pastor this church and faithfully lead them into the truth of all that God had for them as a people who had dedicated by vocalization, dedicated their lives to Jesus. And so he writes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. And he says, Additionally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. Keep doing, keep going, keep doing it. Keep persevering, keep enduring. That's my message of encouragement to all of us today. If, if you're doing this, keep on going. Keep living this life. Keep following Jesus. Come on, students, keep persevering. Keep enduring. I know it's hard, and I know it's daunting, and I know it's not popular, and I know it feels like culture's closing in, but keep on going. So Paul clarifies, and maybe somebody needs to write this down today, unequivocally that there is a way of Jesus for you and for me. Now, <clears throat> this is a shocking and oftentimes offensive proposition to the modern self, isn't it? Yep. A self that has been baptized in the waters of modernity and postmodernism. And many of us don't even know it. It was Tozer who said, to escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. In our eagerness to get rid of the legalistic doctrine of works, we have thrown out the baby with the bathwater and have gotten rid of obedience as well. And so after his introductory thoughts, Paul gives an absolute truth. I know it's not popular to do this today, but he gives an absolute truth concerning the will of God for a follower of Jesus. He writes this in, in verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. Now this is a big word. And I want to pause here just to be pastoral for a second with us. Throughout the rest of this message today, some of us are going to be personally contending on the inside. There's going to be conviction in the room because I believe that the Holy Spirit is ministering right now and it's one of his jobs. I know there might be some discomfort. Can I just tell you this right now? If you're wondering, if this thought pops up in your mind, is he preaching directly at me? No. You're not that important. <laughs> I'm preaching the Bible, y'all. Okay? And I want to say that because I want, to, I want to acknowledge in the room today, I'm so good with you wrestling. You might tense up. It might get really quiet in here. It might get really quiet in auditorium too. But here's what I'm believing today is that as we leave this place today, we will be different than how we came in. The Greek word that Paul used was a familiar word. It was a potent word. It's the word hagiosmos. It's a word that means to be set apart by God, for God. It's a word that conveys the idea of something set apart for special and holy use. 
It's a word that is not static, but instead it's in motion. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sanctification is, and I quote, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Come on. And we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. The concept is not of sin being totally eradicated, that is to claim too much, or merely merely counteracted, that is to claim too little, but of a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from the sinful habits and forming us in Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. Let's look at our doctrinal statement now on sanctification. It's right there in your journal, page 84. Hopefully you've turned there. I'll give you a second if you haven't. But this is what it says. We believe, this is in our statement of faith as a church. We believe sanctification is the ongoing process of yielding to God's word and his spirit in order to complete the development of Christ's character in us. It is through the present ministry of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that the Christian is enabled to live, come on somebody, a godly life. Here's what I want to say to us today. Sanctification does not make us more than human. It is the process of learning and engaging a new way to be human. So just so we know, sanctification doesn't all of a sudden make us these these people who live on this totally different level. Like now my humanity doesn't exist. Actually quite the opposite. My humanity exists. The process of sanctification is me yielding to God's word, me yielding to God's spirit. And guess what? No longer living according to the old man, but now living according to the new man. J.I. Packer expounds on this for us, writing regeneration, the, the idea and the concept, the doctrine of being made new, was a and is a momentary, monergistic act of quickening the spiritually dead. We talked about this last week. As such, it was God's work alone. Sanctification, however, is in one sense synergistic. It's an ongoing cooperative process in which regenerate persons alive to God and freed from sin's dominion are required to exert themselves in sustained obedience. <clears throat> Someone shout sustained obedience. obedience. Come on, somebody turn to your neighbor and say sustained obedience. obedience. Everybody turn back to your neighbor and say, be quiet. Don't talk to me that way. <laughs> In the book, Great Doctrines of the Bible, the authors work to bring even greater clarity as they write this. If regeneration has to do with our nature, justification with our standing, and adoption with our position. Oh, if you have not studied the doctrine of adoption, oh, it's the most beautiful doctrine ever. It's the process of becoming a son and daughter. These, these, are, these are beautiful and rich and massive realities of our gospel. This is why I teach this way, church, because I love these truths. I love the idea that you and I could be homeless and we could be lost and we could be destitute, but because of God's grace and his mercy, he calls you when, when you say yes to Jesus, he calls you a son and a daughter. And adoption with our position and sanctification has to do with our character and our conduct. In justification, we're declared righteous in order that in sanctification, we may become righteous. Justification is what God does for us. Every shout for us. us. While sanctification is what God does in us. 
Justification puts us into right relationship with God, while sanctification exhibits the fruit of that relationship. A life separated from a sinful world and dedicated unto God. In other words, sanctification is the ongoing process of you and I yielding to God's transformative power and grace in our lives. Yielding, day in, day out. Now, some of us are already tripping over our thoughts because you're like, but wait a second, I make mistakes. This last week, or yesterday, Friday, Friday and Saturday, Erica and I and the kiddos went down to Idaho to celebrate with some friends who opened a brand new building that their church has been working on for the past few years. It was a beautiful celebration. The celebration took place Friday night. And uh, so I found myself worshiping my heart out, praising God. It was a beautiful service. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. Some of you might in this service, like after I start talking this way, but during worship, it was beautiful. I mean, the songs we were singing were absolutely amazing. The band was going for it. And as I have my hands lifted to Jesus, I found myself thinking, about tacos. Can I get a witness in church today? Come on, have you ever been there before? Come on, show hands. Who are, who's there right now, right now? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You stopped listening. And so, and so after service, I, I walk over to my boy and, and I walk over to Eric and I was like, hey, we're gonna crush some tacos tonight. You find the place and we're gonna get it. So she found the place. Oh, guys, oh. So she shows up at our Airbnb and she's got these boxes and she opens the box. And one of the boxes were these fries and they poured queso all over them and they had steak on top of them. And she just handed me a fork and I was like, you are a good woman. And so (laughs) went to town and then she had bought these street tacos. And so Justice and I were just crushing tacos and they're little mini street tacos. So I didn't even breathe. It was just one in. (laughs) to it and they just went down and then we ordered all of these large I'm talking barbacoa and shredded beef and steak we got fried shrimp on one of them I mean it was taco heaven but I'm not gonna lie to you I'm I'm down in these tacos I'm putting it back and maybe you've been here before as I do I'm thinking to myself I can't tell my health coach about this Cause they'll have some words to say. Guys, I went to bed, like just how many of you like gloriously full, <laughs> happy. And in one minute, proud of my decisions. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but the next minute, not so proud of my decisions. And then I woke up the next morning, definitely not proud of my decisions. <laughs> now I'm on this health journey and we're working out and, and, and doing everything that we can to stay fit and healthy for the, for the stuff that God has for us. And, and I want to be able to run my race, but I'd be lying if I said to you that there was a moment after this taco gorging that had taken place that I was like, man, I'll just throw in the towel. No more working out. Just eat tacos the rest of my life. You ever been there before? Has anybody ever allowed a mistake to stop you from moving forward? And I help us with that illustration because that's the process of sanctification at times. Now, don't get me wrong. There's things as we're going to talk about in just a moment that we are called to stay away from, to actually not indulge in. 
but I want to highlight the idea. I want to, I want to, I want to make sure that you are aware that I have compassion at a very real level and an understanding that there are moments where we're on a journey, where some of us are today. We're on a journey. We're trying to walk this out and we slip up a little bit. And I want to tell you, like Paul told the Thessalonians, listen, God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a reason. Don't give up because the process of sanctification is a journey. And that journey is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you and I have to live with obedience in it. So guess what? I got to back up from the tacos a second. And I'll be back in the gym on Monday. I'm not going to give up on everything. And I'll keep on lifting. And I'll keep on persevering. And there may be an Oreo that happens in the middle of the week. I don't know. But here's what I'm saying. Is that you got to keep on going. Now, I'll pause here just for clarification because I need to say this. Please don't equate the things that God has called us to stay away from as the tacos we can indulge in. Using it as an illustration, they're like, see, he said, if I happen to accidentally indulge. No! Because those tacos will kill you. So what's the goal of sanctification? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. Watch this. This is what he says. That Christ is formed in you. That's the goal, that Christ is formed in you. Let's look at another moment found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul's talking to the Corinthians. Now, guys, this church, woo-wee, if you've never read the book, they were wild and out as well. I mean, I'm talking like, well, this is what Paul has to put in his letters. He's like, guys, I need to remind you, stop getting drunk on the communion. That's what he says. And when I say these things, please feel free to laugh because it's outrageous. He's like, listen, that's not what it's there for. It's body, blood, right? Not a, not a party favor. Like, <laughs> that's what he was saying. Stop getting loaded on this stuff, guys. It's, it's not right. <laughs> Even to the point where he's like, you're all getting loaded on this and people can't get communion. That's what was, that was what was happening. They're like, everybody's like, where's the wine and the bread? And they're like, Joey over there got a hold of it. <laughs> And the other thing that Paul has to remind them, as if it wasn't something that you should know about, Paul's like, hey, and the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, stop doing that. This is in Corinthians. He's like, so just so we're clear on some things, there's stuff that you should stay away from. Now watch what he says. That's the, that's the context of, of Corinthians. Now watch what he writes. Chapter 6, verse 11. He says, and some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were, here it is, sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Which then, if you're studying Scripture, begs the question, what were they used to be? Who were they before? Paul tells us. That's why I love Scripture. Starting at verse 8. Listen to this. Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do this to brothers and sisters. He's saying you do this to the people that call themselves followers of Jesus and you do as well. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on record and he says, and some of you used to be like this. But, come on, is anybody thankful for the but that God inserts into our story? So, 
You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. See, the issue of sanctification is vital. It's a vital subject in our Christian faith. Now, the intent of a message like this is to articulate and teach an approach to sanctification that is faithful to Scripture, saturated by the Spirit of God, and sober-minded in, the, in our awareness of current cultural circumstances. As one commentary would put it, the call to sanctification is not a call to stuffiness or drabness. And I think that's what happens sometimes. Man, look at the church being all prudish. Look at them all buttoned up. Can't do anything. You just got to walk around and stare and secretly wish on the inside that you could do all those things. But I love what this one author would say. The call to sanctification is not that. It's not a stuffiness or a drabness. Check this out. It's a, it's a call to usefulness, to availability, and to fidelity. And then he says this, it is a call to an adventure of discovering what life is really intended by God to be. Now I want to say a few more things before we continue on today. As a pastor and teacher, there's a very specific instruction and mandate that has been placed on me that I take very seriously. The mandate of our preaching and our care is growth and maturity within the church. This is what Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 through to 16 is speaking about. And I read, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ. When? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son. Growing into maturity, how's it measured? With a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And then we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and wind and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love. Come on, Auditorium 2. By, by speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual member. <clears throat> As Paul writes, my duty is to speak the truth in love. I want to say to you as a church, and everybody looking at me, both rooms stay online today. I want to say to you, as your pastor, I love you. And I know for some of you, those could sound like flippant words. They could literally mean nothing because I know they're tossed around a lot in this culture, but I want to let you know this pastoral team Erica and I, as your pastors, we love you. We love you. It is a joy to serve as your shepherd. But with that being said, the remainder of our content today is going to prove to be intense and subsequently the content for the next couple of months as well. We are going to venture into territory that will be incredibly confronting at times uncomfortable and countercultural. My heart is not to offend for the sake of offense, but rather my heart is to convey what I believe to be, what scripture informs me to believe is the right and most compelling vision for our lives as God's creation and is optimal for human flourishing. Yeah. 
My heart is to, with humility and love, help us understand God's heart and design for each of us individually and to lead this church, hear me, the well, into a biblically formed and informed community of faith. Now, as Paul would describe in verse 13, my goal as your pastor is to help us reach unity in the faith. And so we are clear, the faith is already defined for us. It's not up for grabs. It's not open for revision. It's not a working document on Google Docs that we get to change in order to adapt to the times. Unity is not a style. It's not a motif. Unity is not about preference and song selection. Unity is to be found in our faith. And that's what this whole thing is about. Also, these topics, while confronting and pointed, they do not negate compassion. Contrary to popular opinion, I know the pundits would say it and the TikTokers and the Instagrammers right now, but contrary to popular opinion, you can have and hold conviction at the same time as compassion. You want to know how I know that? I'm a parent. I can hold conviction and love at the same time. You want to know how? I'm a parent. I can preach the truths that we're going to work through and still hold compassion for people who do not agree or do not believe or whose lives are not in alignment with what it is that we adhere to as Christ's followers. However, I will not pander, nor cower, nor be passive when it comes to the mandate to, to teach and preach the full counsel of God's word. That's what truth in love means. So with that being the case, we're going to move into what can be some very confronting thoughts over the next few minutes, the final minutes here, and then over the next few weeks, we, we are going like subterranean. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to continue to stack on this platform that we've been talking about, and then we're going to get to some really heavy-hitting issues at the, towards the middle and end of September going into October, the gauntlet of the series. If you've read ahead in your book, stop. <laughs> just come to church. So to stick with the text that we've been examining today, let's just break it down. Let's, let's, let's extract some things from him. We can see that Paul lines out for the Thessalonians very clear instruction on how one's life is to be found in the beautiful and ongoing process of sanctification. That's what I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at today. So I want to make some observations about sanctification that we see right here in the text, and we're just going to work as far as we can into these, and then, and then we'll land that plane. Sound good with everybody? Yeah. All right, shot number one. Right. Write this down. The first thing that we see in the text is that we participate in sanctification through abstinence. Every shot abstinence. Every shot abstinence. I know it's a word. Some of you just like went, who? It's a loaded word. For some of us, it was preached at in, in youth ministry and the church talks a lot about it. For some of us, we see it as a very negative term, but it's actually a very beautiful term that we need to work with. So Paul writes, for you know, in verse 2, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, open up that tab again as we talked about in the beginning. My focus today is not going to be the sexual immorality part. We'll talk about that later. Yay. (laughs) Not later today, later in this series. My view today is going to be on this issue of abstinence, this whole idea of sanctification. Y'all tracking with me? And so that's what we're going to work through. The idea that's being presented here is that there are things that we are called 
to stay away from. And in this case, contextually, sexual immorality is the issue that Paul is dealing with. But beyond that, there are so many things throughout Scripture that we are called to stay away or abstain from. You and I are called to stay away and abstain from greed. Drunkenness. Idolatry. Bitterness. Unforgiveness. Lust. Murder. Can we all agree? We've been called to abstain from murder. Some of you are like, but they're really annoying. (laughs) Stealing. Hate. And that which is generally morally compromising. However, there's a part of abstinence that we don't really look at sometimes. We often overlook that actually aids in the process of sanctification. So what many of us have done is we've taken this issue of abstinence and we've made it a negative. But actually it's got a double reality to it. There are some things, abstinence oriented, that God says, I need you to stay away from that in perpetuity. Don't do that. It leads to destruction. It's, it's not beneficial for you. It doesn't promote the, the vision that I have for your life, says God. But there's also some things that he's like, if you abstain from this, the, de- the depth in which you will have in relationship with me will be so much greater than what you realize. There's things that he asks us to abstain from that actually draws closer to God. As an act of fasting, for instance, abstaining from food for the sake of drawing closer to Jesus. How many of you agree? That is a beautiful part of our faith. What, what is fasting? It's abstinence from food. It's the denial of food for the sake of drawing closer unto Jesus. There's, there's parts in Corinthians where Paul would say to married people, he'd say, hey, listen, I, want, I would encourage you guys to abstain from sex, from, to, to abstain from intimacy, and do it for a short period of time, though. And the only reason you're to do this is to pray. That's what he says. I want you to abstain for the sake of prayer, but don't go too long. Let's the enemy come in and try to create a foothold and start pulling you apart. So is sex bad? Is that what Paul's saying? No, it's beautiful. God created it. Like I said, we're going to talk about that in this next, in it, later on in this series. But what he's saying is that there's certain things that are better. Now I know in our popular culture right now, that's going out on the limb because culture would say there's nothing greater than that. Well, Paul would say actually prayer. This is what St. Francis of Assisi would say. He'd say, above all, the grace and the gifts that Christ gives to his beloved is that the greatest gift that he gives us is the act of overcoming self. This is what abstinence is. See, too often we look at this sacred act as a painful crucible that one must bear if he or she is to follow Jesus rather than seeing it as an act of overcoming grace. Yes, there are things that God in his goodness declares as something to be avoided for the sake of not being led into destruction. However, there are also things that we abstain from and in doing so lead us to even greater depths of relationship and intimacy with Christ. If you think about it, listen to this church. Every act of our decision-making is an act of abstinence. Here's how. Another way to say it would be like this. Everything that we say yes to requires a no to something else. Abstinence. This is abstinence. When I focus and when I choose to worship today, I'm abstaining from worry. 
When I choose to read God's word, I'm abstaining from personal authority. When I serve, I'm abstaining from selfishness. When I give, I'm abstaining from greed. When I love, I'm abstaining from hate. When I forgive, I'm abstaining from bitterness. Abstinence is the sacred act of separation and dedication unto God. Abstinence is me saying, God, use my life to do your will. Everybody shout number two. Here's the second thing. Sanctification is a life lived with control. He said control. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. The idea that Paul introduced is such a beautiful and yet profound one. Paul employs two words here that bring clarity to the idea of what it means to be controlled. The Greek word that he uses for holiness is one we're already familiar with. It's the word hagiosmo. But the next word that he uses in the Greek for honor, this is cool, is the, is the Greek word time. This word does not mean time is how we think about it by looking at a clock, but instead it speaks to the quality of something that is preserved and in good standing perpetually. Y'all see what I'm talking about? It's as if a violin or a cello, as it's preserved appropriately, the older that it gets in that preservation, the richer and more robust and the more beautiful it becomes. It actually doesn't lose its sound, but it gains an even better sound because it's held, because it's preserved, because it's controlled. That's what he's using. It's, it's like, it's, it's the time that makes something even better. But control is not a self-willed or a self-sustained control, but rather a spirit-enabled control. This is the type of control that Paul would talk about in Galatians as he talks about the fruit of the spirit. Now, you know, like I know, that we live in a time and a culture that sees control as oppressive to the self. In our postmodern culture right now, the greatest freedom, the greatest freedom that you, can, you and I can have is personal anarchy. Which is in, it, it's the stark opposite to what the Bible presents to us. And I get it's a hard selling point when we talk to the world. Because the world's pitching, do whatever you want. Feel however you want to feel. Do, do, do whatever makes you feel good. Whatever makes you feel right. And the Bible, hard sell, is perseverance and endurance in staying abstinent from things. Learning how to control yourself. And no longer living according to my human nature. But rather the new nature that's in Christ. Spirit filled and spirit led. But that's a hard sell because how many of you agree with me? It's easier to just do what I want to do. So John Piper would write this. He would say, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, how many of you know this to be true? My feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I love the clarity and the, and, the, and the transparency in this. So he says this, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. In other words, the dilemma that you and I face is that many of us, instead of bending ourselves to truth, we work to bend the truth. You're like, I don't, I don't like that one. 
Come on. And so then we Google some obscure person from the 14th century who said a bunch of things that didn't make sense. And we use it to try to justify what we don't like about God's word. Come on, can I be your pastor today? And so I, I love this idea. What if you and I were to engage in the continual process of yielding and bending myself to conform to God's truth? And that's why Paul the Apostle would say in Romans, he would say, hey, listen, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the Bible. This is what this is what the stuff is pointing us to. Pastor and revivalist Andrew Murray said this, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution. Casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in the heart and the life. I want to speak to some of us who would, to those of us who would call our Christ, ourselves Christians today. Maybe you've been around and I've heard this from Christians before. We want a revival. Have you heard that language before? We want to see revival. And here's inherently what many of us mean. Longer worship services. We say things like, just let the worship go. And I'm all for it. But we put, the, we put revival in, the, in these tiny little boxes. And here's the thing. I've been a Christian for a very long time. I've been pastoring for almost 20 years now. I've been to what we call revivals. And here's the crazy thing. The worship went long. It was let go. And all the stuff came out. And all the prayer. And all the laying on of hands. And all the nomenclature. And we called it a revival and we shouted and we got all excited. But here's the thing that I struggle with. There were still affairs. Money was still stolen. People were still abused. The same person who prayed the house down with Christianese language was abusing his nephew. If that's revival, I don't want it. Revival is when you and I have our hearts through sanctification transformed that's the truest revival come on somebody when the marriage it's hanging on by thread right now you want to know what revival is is two people dropping the pride going to forgiveness getting counseling working through what you need to work through and say we're going to tarry on this thing we may hate each other right now but by god's grace we're going to work this out come on somebody You, know, you want this is sanctified. You want to know what revival is? Is turning off your phone and your computer. Get, getting getting help with that issue. Man, I just can't. I can't break this porn addiction. We'll throw the phone at the wall. Come on, if you bleed something dry. Come on, come on, somebody. You, you want to know what revival is? Stop walking around everybody and, and looking for any man you can possibly find. I know you're all going to leave here and not want to come back. This, that's a revival. Revival is when people from the world step into a place and they realize there's something otherworldly happening here. That's revival. Right? Revival, revival is students not being swayed by the, by the craftiness of our world and the enemy. 
Revival is when our sixth grade students are quoting scripture. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Come on, that's, that's revival. I don't, can I get, can we get old cool? Let's preach you for just a second. That's revi- when hearts are changed, minds are transformed. Come on. When we start doing things different than how we've always done it. That's revival. And some of us are standing right now because we believe in revival. We believe that God can do something in our midst. Come on, some of us are standing right now because we believe that this stuff can actually happen. Oh, somebody, when I live my life according to say, God, change me. Well, pastor, you're asking us to be perfect. No, you ain't perfect. There's tacos everywhere. But here's what, here's what we do. We create, we create circles of justification. Well, I'm always going to mess up. That's you telling them it's human nature. So let me get this straight. My sin is more powerful than the, than the spirit of God. Because he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. So sometimes I'll see a taco and I know I'm not, that, that taco is off limits. And I can, I can go, no. Oh man, they're so, oh. I'm not even going to get to all the points. I don't even know what to do right now. Um, I feel like I need to, like statements that help us really, really sink into this. Because we're, we're going to talk about this. But I gotta say, like, as a married man, a lot of people run around thinking, they're like, oh, once I get married. Can, can I just say this? You, you need to hear this. Women are still beautiful when you're married. Temptation is still there when you're married. Me and Erica, we're literally talking about this, so I'm not saying something weird that she hasn't heard before. Men are still handsome when you're married. And so what's my responsibility? As a man or as a woman, my wife? Our responsibility is to submit my sexuality unto God and unto her. I got two areas of submission in my life now, God and my wife. Am I talking to many in church today? But I can walk, I can walk by and go, oh, there's my my eyes. And so I've got to, I get to look down, walk away. Or even more importantly, what the scripture says, and this is the one area that it says about everything. He says, resist the devil. That's what scripture says. But when it comes to these these issues, the Bible says run. I ain't going to play with that fire. That that fire will burn you. You you see what I'm talking about? And and we we have these issues that we don't want to talk real about. My goodness. Stop, Jason. Okay. (laughs) Good Lord. Okay. Third, Third thing. Third thing. Third. Guys, I've got four more points. Um, I'm just playing. I, I, that, uh, that's not true. That's not true. I want to say the third one. I'm going to skip all the other stuff that I was going to say within this. Here's the, here's the third point. A life of sanctification has implications upon the community of faith. The community of faith known as a church is not a gathering of isolated individuals, but rather a living, breathing, and interconnected body of belonging. 
First Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the body being connected together. This is a vital truth to realize because your life impacts the life next to you. Whether you like it or not, that's what it means to be a part of a community. I'm going to invite the team up. Um, unfortunately, what's happened over the past 20, 30 years of church in, a church in the church growth explosion era, especially in the U.S., is that we've worked to build programs and initiatives and ways of trying to produce a false harmony or a false unity within the church. We've tried to make our church more like coffee shops and CrossFit boxes rather than a sanctuary and a house devoted to prayer, worship, and consecration. I close on this. In his book, The Benedict Option, writer Rod Dreyer tells a story of going to visit a Benedictine monastery. And he interviews the head monk. I don't know, for some of you right now, we start talking about monks and you hear Gregorian chanting and brown robes. And So as Rob talks to this monk, he asks them about their way that they're committed to. And in this conversation, the lead monk gives him the details of how this looks. He says, we work together to experience the presence of God. We sit together at dinner in silence and we eat in order to experience the loudness of community within quiet. And then he starts talking about how they welcome people in because people are fascinated by these monasteries. And so they say, well, we welcome, and they call them sojourners and pilgrims. People escaping from the concrete jungles of the world into the beauty of this sacred place known as the monastery. (laughs) So in asking, he's like, well, how do you receive them? He says, here's the first thing that happens is when anybody comes in from the outside, sojourner or pilgrim, he says, we wash their hands and their feet. We serve them. But we know that that's that's how we serve them, but nothing's necessarily changing. But it's helping them realize that you're coming here to experience something that's different from out there. And he says, well, what else do you do with them? He's like, they work with us according to our rules. And he says, then we sit at dinner together. And he goes, and here's the thing. We still sit at dinner silent. And Rod, Rob finds this fascinating. Why, why would you, why would you do this? And this is what the lead monk says. He goes, we know that they're looking for something different. So we are not going to change our way because they're trying to escape from their way. Now I want to read you this quote. In his book, he says this, too many of our churches function as secular entertainment centers with religious morals slapped on top when they should be functioning as the living, breathing body of Christ. Too many churches have succumbed to modernity, rejecting the wisdom of past ages, treating worship as a consumer activity and allowing parishioners to function as unaccountable, autonomized members. The sad truth is, is when the world sees us, it often fails to see anything different from non-believers. Christians often talk about reaching the culture without realizing that having no distinct Christian culture of their own, they have been co-opted by the secular culture they wish to evangelize. Without a substantial Christian culture, it's no wonder that our children are forgetting what it means to be Christian and no surprise that we are bringing in no converts. If today's churches are to survive the new dark age, they must stop being normal. 
We will need to commit ourselves more deeply to our faith. And we will need to do that in ways that seem odd to contemporary eyes. By rediscovering the past, recovering liturgical worship and asceticism, that's, that's prayer and fasting, centering our lives on the church community and tightening church discipline, we will, by God's grace, listen to these words, again, become the peculiar people we were always meant to be. The fruits of this focus on Christian formation will result not in, a, in stronger Christians, but in a new evangelism, evangelism as the salt recovers its taste. Church, this is what Paul would say when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And John would say it like this, I must decrease so he can increase. And that is my prayer for us as a church. Come on, everybody shout it. Amen. I've gone so far over time, I apologize. Man. Bow your heads, we're gonna pray. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. Shotgun wedding style. I bet you there's some people in here today that are right now in this moment saying, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to follow him. And we're going to pray with you today. So come on as loud as we possibly can. If that's you today, you're like, man, I, my, I, my, my heart, my mind, everything's being wrecked right now. I just want to know this Jesus. I want to be wrapped in his grace. I want to follow him. Make this your prayer right now. Come on as loud as we can, church, all across our rooms today. Everybody just say this after me. I'm giving my life to you, Jesus. Giving you my past. Giving you my right now. And I'm putting my future in your hands. Save me. And today, I am declaring I'm going to follow you to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' mighty name.